and I will go in three, two, one. Welcome back to. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Jesus. Welcome back to Space Castle. It's your clubhouse for all things nerdy. My name is DT, and I am joined by my good friend, Super Laser Seth. Good friend of my personal life, good friend to the podcast, good friend to the internet in general. Dude, thank you so much once again for hanging out with me. We're going to be talking about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Seth, do you want to say hi to the people? Hello, everybody. Sorry you can't see my uh, wonderful Home Alone slash Angela from Sleepaway Camp face this time, but we'll make do with just the voice. <laughs> We're going to get through it. It'll be just fine. So Seth and I saw Wakanda Forever, the follow-up to 2018's Black Panther, directed by Ryan Coogler. It stars Letitia Wright as the titular Black Panther. Spoiler alert, there will be many, many spoilers for this episode. <laughs> it also stars Lupita Nyong'o, Danai Gurira, Winston Duke, who is one of my fucking favorite actors at this point. He's amazing. The just fantastic Angela Bassett, Martin Freeman, Tanach Huerta, who is actually a brand new character for the MCU. And another introduction to the MCU is Dominique Thorne as Riri Williams. Seth, I'm ready to just jump into this if you are, man. Let's go for it. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, this is a big movie. This is the, the last movie in the fourth phase of Marvel movies. And surrounding everything out until phase five kicks off next year with Quantumania, the new Ant-Man and Wasp movie. This one had the absolutely difficult task of trying to pivot after its main actor. Uh, passed away very suddenly of cancer two years ago. So the entire world seemed to mourn the loss. And uh, it's one of the kind of pivotal aspects of this movie, just both paying respect to him as an actor and what he did for the franchise and just being a great person in general, and also trying to pivot and find ways to make the franchise work going forward and also you know maintain its foothold in the MCU. To speak to that, I think... The movie does that very, very well. I think it eulogizes Chadwick Boseman and just the character of T'Challa in general very, very beautifully. The first like 10 minutes or so are pretty much just the other characters in the movie going through the process of, of burying him and mourning him and trying to figure out where to go next. And uh, I don't know, Seth, what did you think of that? The first 10 minutes where they're essentially eulogizing Chadwick Boseman. They were great. You could tell it was first and foremost on their minds and in their hearts when they were working on the movie was getting that part right the amount of thought they went into it, as, especially as far as issuing some more dramatic options to kill T'Challa off and go with something that mirrored what happened to Chadwick Boseman. That he was ill, that he hid his illness from a lot of the people close to him and from the public for a long time, up until very close to the end, makes it really hit hard and really puts you right into where the characters are from the get-go. Uh, without feeling exploitative in a gross or an icky way, which it certainly could have. They didn't fall into any of the traps of trying to throw him in with CGI, recast him, overplay their hand with anything that went with him. It was uh, not subtle, but subtle enough that it felt properly integrated. I completely agree. Like you said, it could have been tacky. It could have been icky. It could have been exploitative. And it wasn't at all. It was a very careful, very measured, very fitting tribute to Chadwick Boseman. 
That was one of the things I asked a lot of people about before I actually saw this movie. I didn't want any spoilers. Like that's weird for me because I'm not somebody who necessarily strays away from spoilers, especially with the MCU movies since Endgame, really. But I didn't want to know anything about this one because you talked me into seeing it, and I figured I was going to go in like give it the the old college try because I've become almost sort of infamous for not liking Marvel movies since Infinity War, really. Like I was not the biggest fan of Endgame. So the only thing I asked the people who had seen the movie very early on when it released this this past week was how was the tribute to Chadwick Boseman and how is Namor? And the resounding answer to both was the tribute was beautiful, Namor is fucking rad. And the first, absolutely, let's speak to that first, the, the, the very first question. Like you said, the tribute was very measured, it was very careful, it was very beautiful. I did not expect to be tearing up in the first 10 minutes of this movie, and I fully did. And it wasn't the super heavy, high ABV stout I had drank just prior. <laughs> it was actually very, very well done, very emotional, and very honest. You can tell this was something that was put together by people who really loved that man. And they wanted to pay tribute to him before they inevitably and eventually found the way to tell the story moving forward without him. But it also didn't feel like it dragged down the first bit of the movie either. It didn't feel like it, it felt organic in a sad way. In a, in a cathartic way too, though, but it did feel very organic that it led up into the story we eventually get into. And we should probably talk about that next. <laughs> There's a lot of fucking story here. Again, full-on spoiler warning. Uh, there'll be a spoiler warning in the show notes and all the hype on social media too. If you have not seen this movie yet and you don't care about spoilers, continue listening. If not, I will totally understand when the listens spike for this episode in like a week or two. <laughs> so no worries. I'll say one warning for the spoilers. Even if you think you don't care, the post-credit sequence, don't spoil it for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Just let that one go. Yeah. Good call. Well, after T'Challa's funeral and the characters have kind of found their way or are still kind of struggling to find their way after the fact, we learned that the US government has in their possession a device that can detect vibranium, something that was previously thought impossible because vibranium is such a unique alloy. Uh, it doesn't set off any metal detectors. It's super elusive. And up to this point, it was thought you were only able to mine it from Wakanda itself, which is what gives Wakanda its, its status and its power and you know makes it the world power it is. So the US government has in their possession a deep sea device that can, that can discover and help them mine vibranium, which is bad news for multiple reasons. First of all, shit can be used to make weapons of mass destruction. It can be used to make super armor. It can potentially kind of maybe almost give people superpowers depending on how they fucking utilized it. Second of all, because it's taking place in deep sea mining and whatnot, it has drawn the US government dangerously close to discovering the city of Talokan, which is ruled by Namor, who is, we learn uh, very early on that he's a mutant. And there's this whole thing about his people and how they come to be. Uh, Seth, you might remember that better than I do. I don't know. But uh, that kind of sets things off in motion, where the U.S. government is about to discover uh, Namor City and its people who have uh, survived at the bottom of the ocean for centuries, like the 16th century, I think they said, or something like that? Yep. It was the 1570s, I think, something like that was where they set the origin scene. So that sets into motion Namor uh, approaching the nation of Wakanda to try and form some sort of alliance to basically protect both of their nations who are both very heavily guarded, largely kept secret. And are both now very much in danger because of outside governments wanting to pursue vibranium very badly because it's become such a very sought after material because obviously because of its its radical, incredible properties. That's where we pick up. And that's where the story really kicks off. And 
Um, <laughs> this is a lot of fucking plot in this movie. They they cover a lot of ground in the like two and a half hour runtime of this movie. With one major exception, I think they cover it pretty efficiently. The major, major exception being the fact that they felt the need to include Martin Freeman as prominently as they did, which yeah. isn't really his fault. I love Martin Freeman, but they do a few too many scenes with him, and it turns out his ex-wife, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Allegra de Fontaine, who's appeared a few times, is established here as the director of the CIA, which I don't know if they had ever explicitly said what her role was or what organization she was in any of her previous appearances. But um, she shows up a few times as his boss, also his ex-wife, Yeah, uh, kind of mirroring her relationship with Nick Fury in the comics, where they were an off-again, on-again couple for decades, both being spies, often competitors, while also having a flirtatious relationship. This doesn't hit any of those. I love Julia Louis-Dreyfus to death. Before this, I really thought she could do no wrong, and- Right now, this isn't really serving her well. No. Because they haven't really written her a character. They just kind of give her some scenes and say, hey, Julie Louis Dreyfus, you're great. Everyone loves you. Go be Julie Louis Dreyfus. And we get closer to new adventures of old Christine Julia Louis Dreyfus when we need a little bit more final season of Veep when Selena Meyer gets mean and a little bit serious, Julie Louis Dreyfus. That whole subplot didn't need to be anything. They use Martin Freeman to convey a key piece of information. The Wakandans are looking for the scientist who created the vibranium detector, which turns out to be Riri Williams. And Martin Freeman, being in the CIA, has access to that information, so he passes that along to them. You really just need a one scene establishing, hey, he's passing that information along to him. He's still working covertly with the Wakandans, but he could get in trouble if he does it. But then they go into a whole thing where several more scenes where they banter a little bit, and then he finds uh, Shuri's beads after she gets taken by Namor and, and his people. None of it works. None of no. it adds anything. <laughs> he gets arrested, but then he gets freed at the end. And it, I guess he's kind of defecting to Wakanda now because he doesn't really have a choice. So I guess it does set something up. I would assume there's something for the Thunderbolts or some future property that they felt like they needed to set that up. But it doesn't add anything to the movie. And there were other plot lines that needed that extra scene or two in that time for an already long movie to like really make him sing. Yeah, like I said before, there's a lot of plot in this movie. And that's probably one of its key issues. One of the key issues I have with the movie, too. Like you said, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is fantastic. Valentina Allegra de Fontaine is a character that they're trying to set up as like this sort of Nick Fury character where you're not really sure whose side she's on, if she's a good guy or a bad guy, if she's working in her own best self-interest or if she's trying to actually form a team. She's been very manipulative, but not quite in the endearing and interesting ways that Nick Fury has. But she's only shown up in like the TV shows on Disney Plus or like the stinger scene at the very end of Black Widow, which very few people fucking saw anyway. They're not doing a very good job of setting this character up for what she's supposed to be. And as such, like you said, the performance is suffering. Julia Louis-Dreyfus has shown up on set, and I, I'm sure she's getting very minimal direction because nobody knows what the fuck she's actually supposed to be doing at this point. She's still a great actress, but the way the character especially is being portrayed in this movie, she just feels like she's out of like a 90s comic book movie, if that makes sense. Like She feels less in place in Wakanda Forever than she would be in like fucking Spawn or, or something weird like that. Like It's the purple streaks in the hair, the weird demeanor, the, the needlessly sort of cryptic way she talks you can't tell if she's a good guy or a bad guy it just doesn't work 
And it's symptomatic of the fourth phase of Marvel movies in general, where the, the centerpiece was the fucking multiverse, which I hate, but it's felt largely aimless. And I feel like even people who are massive fans and even apologists for the MCU in general kind of agree that this phase has been largely aimless. And let me say that De Fontaine is not the least of this movie's problems, <laughs> but it was super fucking refreshing to have a phase four Marvel movie that did not have anything what to do whatsoever with the multiverse. It didn't really work to set up anything else in the future, aside from little threads here and there, and was largely a self-contained story. That was very, very refreshing. That was one of the things the movie I thought did very, very well, and I was very happy for it because I've just been exhausted with all the obligation of watching all the TV shows and seeing all the movies just for the little minutia that leads up into something further down the road. It used to be tolerable with the MCU. It's gotten out of control. And thank you, Ryan Coogler, for at least remembering why I, in particular, really liked MCU movies in general. That being said, this movie has some fucking plot issues. Like Seth said, like we learned that the inventor of the, the vibranium detecting machine is an MIT student who is originally from Chicago. It's Riri Williams. If you're a fan of the comics, you know her as Ironheart. She becomes Ironheart in the movie. She builds the suit and everything. And that sets things off because Namor wants to find and kill her because she's created this device that has endangered his people because now, you know, America is deep sea drilling and they're coming dangerously close to discovering his people and his city. And he doesn't want that because he's largely removed himself and his people from humanity because his ancestors, actually his fucking relatives, uh, were enslaved by, you know, colonists. So there's that continuing theme of, you know, colonists are bad, which I'm fully on board with. But my first plot point that I have a serious issue with is if the U.S. government already has this vibranium detecting device, this is a fucking like U.S. government we're talking about. There's no way they haven't already reverse engineered that shit and know how to make more of them. So why does anybody need Riri Williams and why does Namor want to kill her if U.S. government already has exactly what they want from her? And second of all, how did they get a hold of it anyway? Like, she built this thing, presumably by herself in a garage or something, because that's where she builds all her inventions. And all of a sudden, the US government has this huge, like, fully functional working version of this machine. And that sets an emotion once again that Wakanda has to go and rescue Riri because they don't want her to get killed. And Riri Williams is the centerpiece of all the conflict that's happening. But at the same time, she's very, very superfluous and doesn't need to be there and doesn't really have any sort of character arc of her own and the movie in general and seth please stop me anytime you want to jump in and interject the movie in general just feels like the typical marvel bullshit we're stuck with nowadays honestly where they had a certain number of plot points that they had to have in the movie for obvious reasons they need to interconnect it with everything else and everything is just kind of written around that and it all feels somewhat tenuous so i'm gonna disagree with you a little bit uh, on Riri. Okay. One, if there's anything that this made me slightly more excited for as far as the future of Marvel, it is the Ironheart series. Uh, she was a relatively recently created character, first introduced in 2016. I never took off sales-wise. It really felt like a character that had a decent concept, but they never really cracked the character. They never locked in on what was going to make her unique and what was going to resonate with audiences. In this case, it feels like they've at least got the casting right. Dominique Thorne is is excellent. Yeah, she was excellent. And so I'm more on board than I was going into this with the idea of sitting down and watching an Ironheart series and giving it a shot. Before this, it was one of those ones that was like, ah, I'll probably wait until it's done. And you know, maybe if I hear it's good, then I'll go back and finish it. 
If not, just read it, you know, read the plot summary so you get the points that you need for whatever carries over and move on. Definitely a little bit more interested, but she does serve a few different functions. She herself doesn't have a ton of character development. She is a little bit more of a plot device, but there are a f- couple of places where they use her really well. One is with Queen Ramonda. Mm. Um, so at some point um, during the movie, uh, eventually it's engineered that Talo Khan attacks Wakanda itself. Sort of a surprise attack. They flood the city. Uh, troops go all everywhere. Civilians in danger. The entire gang is very much scattered around trying to respond to different mer- emergencies happening around the city during the attack, which leaves the palace vulnerable. And Namor goes straight for uh, Queen Ramonda. He ends up flooding the palace, and both Romanda and Riri Williams are in there and drowning. Angela Bassett just absolutely slays every moment that she's given in this movie. Seriously. There's a wonderful speech earlier where her emotions are getting the best of her. She's dressing down Okoye for letting Shuri get, she believes, possibly killed and kidnapped. They don't know what, ha- what has happened to her at this point. That she's relatively safe in Talakan, that Namor is treating her okay. They don't know anything about what's going on. And she strips Okoye of her rank completely, pointing out multiple ways in which she's failed her people. And Queen Ramonda gives a speech, which they give a snippet of in the trailers, of all the people that she's lost. And Queen Ramonda then dies saving Riri. Mm-hmm. She gets that one last moment at the end, not to save herself and all the pain that she's gone through, but to save a child. Not her child, but someone that she's met and who she acknowledges as exceptional. She sees a little bit of Shuri. It's very clear in you know this young genius prodigy who's very rebellious and sarcastic and you know not prone to listen to authority. Right. I think that works well. The other one is at the end, once Shuri has kind of dealt with her issues, she gets a final scene with Riri, and they very intentionally mirror, you know, the fist bump into the Wakanda salute that um, that Chadwick Boseman gives to Shuri when they they have their first scene in the lab in the first Black Panther movie. Shuri gets to be the big sister to someone younger who needs maybe some guidance and who looks up to her. And it's showing the way that she's matured into synthesizing some of what her older brother has taught her into the world, but also being her own person. So I think there's at least a couple of good plot points that Riri fills. Sure, I, I do agree. And I picked up on both those plot points while I was watching the movie. Um, one of my biggest issues with the movie, though, is the convenience. The fact that Riri Williams, her entire point for this movie is the fact that she exists to facilitate these character beats in honestly kind of an inorganic way for the main characters. You know, the, the last moment with Ramonda, that moment with Shuri, where they have that sort of sibling bonding moment. It, it just, it, it felt like they were obligated to put Riri Williams in there. And Ryan Coogler did the best he could to come up with reasons for her to exist in the movie other than the fact they have to launch the Ironheart series next year. I don't think it fully works. I don't think a lot of this movie fully works, again, just because it feels like convenience. We had dinner, you and I, after we, after we saw the movie. And one of the, the things I brought up was the fact that there are certain points in this movie where Ryan Coogler and the writer, I can't remember the writer's name, and I apologize in advance, but they set this movie up where they're giving you the specific plot points or plot devices early on, and they're basically telling you exactly what they're going to be used for later on. And as such, the movie feels flat. It feels like it was made out of obligation, like, and maybe it's partially due to heartbreak because Bozeman's death. I'm sure COVID had a lot to do with it too. The movie had been delayed a couple of times due to COVID. 
I know Lupita Nyong'o at one point had COVID and they had to delay uh, filming and production and whatnot. But it, it, this is a movie that, for me, largely feels like it was just made out of obligation. And it, that aside from some really gorgeous shots and some kind of okay action sequences sort of sprinkled out through the movie, it doesn't feel like it's got the heart and the soul and the motivation that the first movie did, honestly. Like, the first movie had a real story to tell. This movie largely doesn't feel like it has a particularly poignant story to tell. It tries, but it doesn't achieve the same level of storytelling as the original movie. I wonder if this might be it for Ryan Coogler going forward with for the, for the franchise, because he lost his good friend. This movie largely feels like him just going through the motions. The most poignant and powerful stuff in the entire movie is, is the Chadwick Boseman stuff, honestly. At the beginning of the movie, end of the end. And they do a really good job of making sure that the movie isn't hinging on that. It kind of did in the marketing, which kind of fucking sucks, but it wasn't necessarily their fault. But the story that happens that is bookended by the eulogies for Chadwick Boseman are largely not informed by his death, which is admirable. But there's not a whole lot to grab onto once we're done talking about Chadwick Boseman in the movie and the passing of T'Challa, I think. I think, I don't know, I think Letitia Wright is an okay actress. We know she's kind of a shithead offset and kind of a shithead onset too. Uh, rumor has it there were some issues with her being a, a vaccination denier and refusing to get vaccinated. And we're not here to talk about that. But I think she's an okay actress. I think she's serviceable. I don't think she is quite strong enough to carry this franchise going forward. And the movie at the end kind of does some clever things to set it up, or maybe she doesn't necessarily have to be the person carrying the franchise going forward. But. I don't think everybody was fully invested in this movie. And for me, it was hard to get fully invested as a viewer because so many things went horribly wrong with this movie. And what they did accomplish is admirable. But as a standalone piece of art, I think it suffers in a lot of ways. See, I think you're projecting a little bit there. Maybe. As far as that, there are definitely elements where you can tell they were handed things that Marvel told them, hey, to set up future stuff, this needs to be in the movie. Riri is currently one of them. I was a little surprised because I thought there was an obvious angle uh, to introduce her, which was that she is studying at MIT, but to have her be a student who was influenced at some point by one of the outreach programs that T'Challa was starting at the end of the first Black Panther movie. Sure, that would make sense. You know, Namor brings it up later. It's like, hey, if he hadn't opened up the world to tell them about the existence of Vibranium, they wouldn't be looking for Vibranium and they would not have found us. And it ties into T'Challa's actions really set off the plot, the decision he makes at the end of Black Panther 1. And you could have anchored that a little bit more and also given a little bit more of a reason why Riri might have been interested in Vibranium or been, been you know, looking into something like that. Other than they, they just say, oh, well, her metallurgy professor told her she couldn't, you know, she couldn't build a Vibranium detector, so she did it. Yeah. Yeah, at this, the convenience of Riri Williams being a super genius out of nowhere who invents the device that finds vibranium. She also manages to build a fucking arc reactor twice in the movie, something that was previously thought impossible because Tony Stark was such a, a unique mind. It, again, it's very, very convenient and very shoehorned in. And yeah, I mean, I, I thought Dominic Thorne was great as a character. She doesn't have a lot to do aside from, you know, those synthetic character moments for the other characters and also just kind of random one-liners thrown in whenever to kind of break up the drama and whatnot. But I don't know. 
I don't know. <laughs> so that was something you you brought up last night at dinner, and I I, I do want to kind of counter you on a little bit the one liners and the way that Riri feels very similar to other characters. Yeah, I think there's actually a little bit of difference. For example, I would at this point pay to see something involving Yelena Belova, um, played by Florence Pugh, uh, Kate Bishop, played by Haley Steinfeld, and then Riri. Uh, all together in a single series. And yes, they're all characters that do one-liners, but I think they come at it from a little bit of a different angle. Yoanna being a little bit more cynical and world-weary. Uh, Kate being very much more enthusiastic for everything that being a superhero brings. Gung-ho about jumping straight into whatever problem is there. And then Riri being a little bit more of the straight man sitting back, looking at these situations saying, wait a minute, you guys think this is normal? This is not normal what is going on here, playing a little bit more of the straight man. I think the three of them would have a good chemistry. And I think we're going to get something like that at some point because I'm sure they're setting up some version of a Young Avengers or Champions, both of which have been kind of younger counterparts to the Avengers in recent years. And we've seen other characters get set up that way. Uh, Scott Lang's daughter, for example, is a founding member of that in the comics. Yeah. Uh, going back to Falcon and Winter Soldier. Elijah Bradley, the original black Captain America who Sam meets and hears his story in that series. His nephew is actually a member as well at some point. I think there is a little bit of differentiation there. They're all one-liner characters. They're a little bit different types of one-liners. I think it can work. Okay. I think it's going to take a a unique writer to try and tackle that because the point I was making to Seth uh, that you guys haven't heard (laughs) because you weren't at dinner with us uh, is the fact that the Marvel's setting up all these young characters to kind of, you know, take up the mantle of all the older characters who are aging out of the roles and whatnot. And my fear is that all these characters are essentially being written exactly the same. You've got the young, college-age, snarky, one-lining characters, fish out of water. And I, I'm worried that they're eventually all going to be placed in the same project, and it's just going to be an insurmountable wall of one-liners all the fucking time. <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, getting back to Wakanda Forever. We need to talk about Tenoch Huerta because one of the things I was concerned about was whether or not this movie was going to do justice to Namor or Namor or the Submariner. And Tenoch Huerta fucking knocks it out of the park, actually. Uh, visually, the character draws a lot of inspiration from like Aztec mythology and stuff like that. Absolutely fucking gorgeous character design. Tenoch Huerta plays the character with just the right amount of snark and royalty and contempt for everybody else, but also kind of the sneaky understanding that his city is not alone and it can't remain alone and they're going to need allies. And he goes about forming alliances in a very fucked up way, which it took me a little bit. It took me some digestion to, to understand and not hate how that comes about, <laughs> but that's just no more being a sneaky son of a bitch. Cause eventually you have your, your grand fucking finale, your typical Marvel where there's a billion fucking things happening and there's CGI people jumping around all over the screen. And we'll probably back up into this and talk about it more. But you have that quintessential scene where Shuri, as the Black Panther, has to face off against Namor on her own and defeat him. And she pins him down. And she comes to the moment where she has to decide if she wants to be vengeful because she's pissed off about her brother dying. She's pissed off about the fact that Namor essentially killed her mother right in front of her, blew up large portions of her city and so forth, and betrayed her trust as well because they had a few moments where they kind of bonded and they kind of learned more about each other. So she feels wholly betrayed and she's just fucking straight up angry and she has to decide if she's going to enact that vengeance and kill Namor or if she's going to do what's 
the right thing, essentially, and the influence of her family, which is a good positive influence, and spare him. And Namor ends up kind of bitching out and kind of yielding and surrendering. <laughs> and at first, I fucking hated it because I hated the setup for it. I hated the way it all built up into it. But I hated that quintessential moment until Seth actually explained it to me later. And then I slept on it and I thought about it all day today. And it's Namor just being a sneaky son of a bitch. And that's exactly what he should be. He's conniving. He's a prick. He's almost tyrannical, but he loves his people. And it works for me. And I think Tenach Huerta just knocked it out of the park. I think he's easily the best addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe that this movie has to offer. And I, I think this dude's going to be a big star, honestly. Yeah, I I loved what they did with, with Namor. I almost wonder if the the bit that they do with his name during his origin flashback and the comics, he's just named Namor because as far as I can tell, they thought it was a cool name. Mm-hmm. In this case, he is descended from Mayans. And at one point, he tries to bring his mother back onto the land um, after his people uh, took a different version of a plant that's essentially roughly equivalent to the heart-shaped herb, the vibranium-infused plant that gives the Black Panther its powers. And he tries to bring her back on land to the place she was born to bury her, to fulfill a final promise to her, and sees the people that they are descended from enslaved. And in his rage, he burns down this entire place. And one of the overseers there calls him without love, see Namor. And from that, he takes the name Namor instead of Namor. The whole infusion of the Mesoamerican culture into their works brilliantly. Agreed. The time frame works very well. Atlantis is very much in the comics to me, just kind of a generic cipher, underwater and futury and mysterious. And we just kind of use the fact that they're mysterious and we don't know a lot about them to avoid giving too much detail on their culture in a lot of cases. Uh, so that different writers can do what they want with them. And in this case, I think they found the best hook yet to, to lock that in. Namor was always a character. In the comics, he's drawn physically. His skin is white, but he's drawn with some features that suggest possibly other ethnicities, kind of mysterious. Uh, there's a lot of references in his early appearances, like Namor fighting the white man and things like that. So it's very ambiguous. I mean, he's Atlantean. He's not any of the surface races. He's something else. And they they find a good hook into that one that also very much mirrors the respect that they had for African culture in the first film. Kind of repeating that with Mesoamerican culture, renaming the city from Atlantis to Talokan, which is actually a name that they kind of go through the derivations, but it is actually derived from actual pieces of Mesoamerican culture. Um, the way that they tie Namor's winged feet, which in the comics are kind of random into imagery that actually mirrors Mesoamerican, the, the winged serpent god and, and things like that. I thought they did a great job of Talokan and uh, Namor's origins. Uh, like you said before, his uh, people, his village, they discovered the uh, vibrating refuse plant. They all eat it through sort of, sort of machinations from like tribal elders and whatnot. It's a little vague. It turns them into people who can no longer breathe air. They have to escape and they have to go underwater. Uh, but they all develop super strength and super agility and resilience and whatnot, which obviously allows them to live under the ocean because it's so fucking dense and cold and pressurized and whatnot. Namor's mother was pregnant with him when she drank the liquid that was derived from the plant that was infused with vibranium. So he is technically the first mutant in the MCU, and they say as much. Like, we kind of had that loose allusion to it with Ms. Marvel, 
But Namora is the first full-on actual mutant called physically by name a mutant in the MCU, which is interesting. He is the original mutant in the comics as well. So that yeah. was a nice mirroring of traditional lore. Yeah, it makes sense. That much works. I'm interested to see where they go with this. I'm interested to see if they end up going the traditional route with the comics. His whole sort of thing with Sue Storm, once the Fantastic Four inevitably gets introduced, we know that's going to be coming in phase six, I'm guessing, probably not phase five. It's going to be interesting to see where they go with that character, because he's a great character. He is a compelling character. And uh, like I said, Tanach Huerta just knocks it out of the fucking park. The one thing that got me, <laughs> which I, I, I get and I don't get, is the fact that Talokan has uh, vibranium-infused plants. They've all derived their powers from that. Their culture is largely influenced by it, much like Wakanda was. Uh, they've used vibranium to uh, build things and whatnot. But Talokan is different from Wakanda, and the Wakanda used the vibranium to develop incredible medical technology, transportation, this wonderful utopia, super sci-fi, like futuristic city. They've made life for themselves very, very uh, easy and convenient and healthy and wonderful. It's fantastic. So they've made weapons and they've made armor and they've made force fields and shields and stealth technology and supercomputers that just blow everything on the planet out of the fucking water. And Talokan's like, necklaces. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't quite understand why, why Talokan uh, stayed relatively primitive in terms of the technology and whatnot. I mean, they're, they're able to go up to the surface when they want to and when they need to, but they didn't have any sort of grand, amazing city. It was largely built from stone. And there was some enhancements. Like they had that one centerpiece of the city that was like a light source that kind of derived light from the surface down into the rest of the city, which was really cool and really pretty. But I guess it was purposefully. They strayed in the opposite direction of Wakanda and did not rely on vibranium to develop any sort of technology. It was meant just to enrich their lives and, and just keep them alive, I guess. Like you said, it was very intentional on the part of the filmmakers to give a strong contrast to Wakanda. But I think it makes sense in terms of when you consider that Wakanda kept themselves hidden and secret, but still had access to the technological developments of the rest of the surface world. That's fair. It's not necessarily that someone from Wakanda you know, was the first person to invent a computer, but when computers are invented, they have vibranium that allows them to advance that technology significantly beyond. Okay, that is fair. Talokan is completely isolated, um, except for Namor popping up every now and then apparently to kill people um, <laughs> through history or, you know, as you do when you're extremely angry and vengeful and have superpowers. I think that part made made sense to me. They were very much still locked in isolation, and it kept them in a bubble around the same technological level that they were when they went down there. Sure. There's like a complete and utter sort of disavowing of the surface world in general. They didn't want anything to do with it. So that makes sense. Wakanda, like you, like you were alluding to, on the other hand, had war dogs that they sent out, spies that were always out and about outside Wakanda, like doing reconnaissance, bringing back information and technology and whatnot. Whereas Talokan has absolutely no desire to have any sort of relationship with the, the, the surface world at all, largely because of Namor and his experiences. That makes sense. Okay. Right. Remember, even in the first film, people don't know that Wakanda is advanced as it is. The world at large does know that there is a country called Wakanda. Sure. They do know who T'Challa is. It seemed like they had some knowledge that they had some sort of tribal protector or something called the Black Panther. That didn't seem like it was a complete surprise in Civil War. It was to you know, like the immediate superheroes, but to like Ross and the intelligence community that there was a Wakandan person. 
Yeah, I guess it makes sense that Talokan doesn't have the ability to be like, oh, yeah, we're a city at the bottom of the ocean. You guys know we exist, but you don't know how we exist <laughs> or, or why or what we're actually doing, because that really wouldn't make sense. You can't show up at the UN and be like, yeah, I'm, I'm the god king of an underwater city <laughs> at the bottom of the Atlantic. Okay, it makes sense. And that's a huge part of the plot machinations. Part of the reason why they attack Wakanda is, hey, your actions are going to draw attention to us now. And you're not leaving us a choice. If we want to stay isolated, you have to be gone. You either have to work with us or you have to be gone. And that's largely what Namor does, too. He wants to form that alliance because he wants it to be Talokan and Wakanda against the world because they are inextricably linked via the vibranium, which now everybody wants. And uh, Ramonda actually gives that speech about the fact that now that T'Challa is dead, the rest of the world feels like they are in a position to take over Wakanda or invade Wakanda or weaken Wakanda in order to obtain the vibranium because it's so sought after because of all of its properties and whatnot. And it does happen, actually. There's, there's attacks on Wakandan outreach programs and whatnot for the sole purpose of, of trying to, you know, grab some fucking vibranium to make weapons and shit out of. The one thing that this movie does very, very interestingly, and it's the one sort of thing I feel is in line and in spirit with the first movie, is the fact that this movie full fucking demonizes the United States. Largely because they think Wakanda is responsible for the attacks that are actually being perpetrated by Namor and his people. But the CIA is like, yeah, we're going to fucking, we're going to go to Wakanda and fuck shit up. We're going to destabilize it. And we're essentially going to colonize it and take it over. And we're going to get that fucking vibranium. This movie's got some balls for saying that. And Disney and Marvel have balls for allowing that to be a central plot point for this movie, which I highly respect. It leaves me wondering where things are going to go in the future for the MCU because. I mean, we've got a black guy who is Captain America now, and even though he's still sort of a fugitive and he's largely not directly involved with the U.S. government, he is still a black man who is wearing the stars and stripes. And now we know that his country is literally trying to destabilize an African country and colonize it and destroy their entire way of life because they want their precious metal that they have. I don't know how far and how deep the MCU is going to go with that. Frankly, I think that alone is way the fuck more compelling than anything having to do with the multiverse. And I really sort of wish that those geopolitics and the power struggle having to do with the vibranium was more of the, the central plot point for this phase of the MCU, as opposed to the multiverse, which just doesn't seem to have any sort of fucking beginning or end or any general purpose. Marvel movies used to have purpose. They used to have something to say. Sometimes it was silly, kind of like Iron Man. And sometimes it was very poignant, like the first Black Panther, where we talk about you know different nations sort of obligation to other nations in the world and the role that people are playing and should wakanda actually just keep itself closed off or should it try and open its borders and make the world a better place and the repercussions of doing that because as we all know the world is generally pretty fucked up and when somebody tries to do something nice somebody is inevitably going to try and take advantage of that and use it for their own purposes i hate the fucking multiverse and this movie just makes me hate it even worse because there are interesting, intricate, important, and poignant stories to be telling in the MCU. And instead, we're getting, hey, remember all the other Spider-Man movies? What if we just threw them in another Spider-Man movie? Or, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's frustrating to me that the MCU could be as good as it is in the Black Panther movies all the fucking time. And they just choose not to be. And I get why, because... These are kids' movies and adult movies at the same time, and you can't do 25 movies about warfare and subterfuge and you know political strife and whatnot. But at the same time, it's like, 
why can't we have more of that? Why why did we have to do the silly, fantastical, goofy, absolute nonsense that is the multiverse when there are still somewhat grounded, realistic, compelling stories to tell with all these characters? So I do agree with you on a couple of those points. The political stuff was definitely some of the best parts of the movie. Maybe the only really good part to come out of Allegra de Fontaine's appearance in the movie is she has a line in a scene where, uh, right after the destabilization bit, where uh, Everett Ross is kind of trying to convince her, like, I was working with Wakanda for all of our good. We can't be trusted with vibranium. Can you imagine what we would, what the U.S. would do if we were the only country that had vibranium? And she just gets this big smile on her face. I think about it all the time. Yeah. And that's the point where it's like, it's very clear. She may work with the heroes occasionally in terms of certain villains need to be stopped. But she's kind of in that Amanda Waller sphere of the character that is strictly about accumulating power for her own interest. You also mentioned uh, kind of the attack, and that was one of my other favorite scenes in the movie when Queen Ramonda is giving that speech to the UN. Hilarious that of all countries, it's France that tries to attack a Wakanda <laughs> facility directly. Yeah. It would have been funny if it was like Switzerland. <laughs> exactly. But uh, she's giving a speech to the UN about, you know, everyone thinks we're vulnerable and they intercut it with soldiers going into a Wakandan facility trying to steal some vibranium. And it turns out the Dora Milaje and Okoye are already there waiting for them. It's a trap. And then Okoye ends up marching them in chains into the UN chamber and plopping them. I'm like, oh, you don't think we have proof? We have your men right here. We know who did it. But it's okay. We're going to let it go this once and it's a great scene in no small part because angela bassett is so amazing so the difference between something like this you can do that with black panther um there's a very obvious political tact to take with black panther you still got a little bit of that albeit it wasn't quite as effective in for example falcon and winter soldier yeah it wasn't great though that whole speech about you know we had to do better senator felt largely tacked on and it felt this is a difficult subject for me to talk about as a white male. Obviously, I have no place talking about it. But they tried to sort of shoehorn in the sort of social aspects after the story had already been told into that very last episode. And I don't know how it affected or how it felt to to people it was you know actually supposed to be poignant for. It's supposed to be poignant for everybody. I feel like I'm quickly going to put my foot in my mouth saying this. I don't know where I'm going with this. But <laughs> don't laugh at me. <laughs> but... um. Being a Disney Plus show, it felt like they wanted to say more with Sam as being the new Captain America. And they did say that with like you, the character you mentioned before, the original uh, Captain America, uh, before Steve Rogers. He was one of the, the original super soldiers, and he was exploited. And he was thrown away and treated like shit. He warns Sam about you know them doing the same, like exploiting him. Like him being a black man in America wearing the Stars and Stripes is a controversial and very difficult thing to, to be and do. I don't know. This movie, I feel like, approaches that subject matter in a much more earnest and direct way, whereas Captain Falcon in Winter Soldier probably just wasn't able to, just because of the story they were trying to tell, trying to do something essentially on the Disney Channel versus a major motion picture. But I don't know. I feel like Ryan Coogler has a better handle on that type of stuff than any of the storytellers in the MCU. And like I said before, I'm not sure how this is going to play into the MCU as a whole, because this movie is a smash hit. This movie is going to be largely impactful for the rest of the MCU going forward. And what happened to this movie is way the fuck more interesting to me than, than anything that happened in Loki, for example. 
anything that's probably going to happen in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I'm glad that there's now something else for me to latch onto in the MCU that isn't the fucking multiverse and all that nonsense. But at the same time, I am afraid that it's going to be largely sort of just forgotten and it's going to be just sort of self-contained because now we have two very powerful nations that are sequestered and hidden away that are being hunted by large, powerful superpowers just to exploit them and destroy them and steal what they've got. We've got a black man who is now Captain America, and he's going to have to face a lot of social injustice and a lot of bullshit in carrying that mantle. And we've got a Thunderbolts team that's built up of his friend Bucky, who is somehow going to be working for the US government despite all the shit he's seen. We've got Yelena, who is obviously not a big fan of oppressive regimes. And I'm hoping that the Thunderbolts is going to be something where all these people come together, all these, these heroes come together, and they think they're coming together for their own purposes or for a noble goal. And they're all going to realize that Dave Fontaine is an asshole and the government's corrupt, and hopefully they're going to rebel and it'll be something poignant instead of just a bunch of fucking idiots doing the US government's bidding. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty pretty traditional narrative for the more modern Suicide Squad-esque version of the Thunderbolts, as opposed to what they originally were, which was Baron Zemo creating a replacement team of Avengers that were actually supervillains working for him behind the scenes that no one knew, so that's a power grab. Yeah. They're very much mirroring what DC has with Suicide Squad. Bucky is more along the lines of the Jack Flag. Yeah. The guy that will be kind of keeping the other people on the team in line and on task and on mission and presumably stopping things from going too far when necessary. And then probably getting stabbed in the back at some point along the way in the mission. Yeah, it's got to be that way, right? Like these are compelling characters that are largely for the for the side of good and they've all been more or less manipulated aside from maybe US agent. That guy's just a prick. But these are all characters who are largely in it for the greater good, and they've all been talked into doing this by Allegra de Fontaine. And there's got to be a point in the, the Thunderbolts series where they realize they're being manipulated and they're not doing the right thing, and they've got to rebel at some point. They have to, hopefully. <laughs> the team that they put together for that was a little weird. If, if they had a team that was a little more strictly villainous, I kind of would have suspected that Wakanda Forever was setting up the Thunderbolts movie to be the U.S.'s mission to destabilize Wakanda. Sure. That the Thunderbolts would be sent into Wakanda to infiltrate and to do something, and then at some point perhaps still realize, hey, let's flip over and work with the Wakandans. It's not going to work with Bucky. Exactly, because Bucky's life was essentially saved by the Wakandans, and they straightened him out. Getting back to Black Panther. So the movie obviously resolves itself. Namor is allowed to live after he invades Wakanda and causes a whole bunch of shit. A lot of really bad editing, a lot of really bad CGI characters flipping around and shit. There's a grand battle between Wakanda and Namor City and whatnot. Uh, Colmanes is in Namor and, and Shuri having their fight like I described before. And we're left with a Wakanda that is in very, very different shape than even the movie started. Uh, Shuri is now the Black Panther. She wasn't able to synthesize the heart-shaped herb in order to save T'Challa's life from his illness that he didn't tell anybody about. So she's largely feeling bad about that and feeling really guilty about it. And like I said before, she meets Namor, and in exchange for, for Riri's safety, she comes along to Namor's city. They bond, they kind of share philosophies. He gives her a necklace that his mother once wore. Turns out that necklace, after we're explicitly told by Namor, 
is made of the variant of the vibranium enriched plant that they all took that gave them their powers. Uh, she uses that to resynthesize in her lab in Wakanda a variant of the heart shaped herb and gains the Black Panther powers, blah, 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 and so forth. But it's all very convenient. Like I said, things just kind of happen in this movie and we're kind of explicitly given plot points and whatnot. But Nomura is allowed to retreat back to his city and his people aren't super happy with the fact that he, he sort of uh, surrendered, but he explains his reasoning for doing it. It's all part of his grand plan. Wakanda is now back with a Black Panther after some time without having a Black Panther. Uh, Shuri decides she doesn't want to be queen, so she splits. And they have that grand scene in front of the waterfall where they think Shuri is going to show up and jump out of the fucking the Wakandan ship. And they think it's going to be like her coronation, like she's going to, you know, present herself as the Queen of Wakanda. And M'Baku instead jumps out of the thing and he's like, she's not coming. <laughs> and I'd like to challenge for the throne. So now we've got a Wakanda that has a Black Panther, M'Baku, presumably as the king of Wakanda. The two are now separated. They were one of the same since the beginning of Wakanda, since its inception. Well, the Black Panther was always the king. So now that's separate. And what I said way, way early in this episode about it being clever and interesting how this was set up was so that Letitia Wright, aka Shuri, may not have to be the centerpiece of the Black Panther franchise going forward because they can make more herb if they want to. Uh, she's decided not to be queen, which is fitting because she's not, she's not really suited to be queen as a character in general, and she understands that, never really wanted it. Mbaku is now the king, which is super interesting because. It'll be interesting to see later down the line if he turns out to actually be a good king, because we know he loves his people. He's fiercely protective of them. He loves Wakanda, but he's also like a big hothead and kind of a goofball and whatnot. This movie has set things up to where Shuri doesn't necessarily have to be the Black Panther, you know, the titular Black Panther going forward. I was hoping she wasn't going to be in this movie, but I understand why she was, because it was central to the plot and her character development. I was hoping it was going to be Nakia, played by Lupita Nyong'o. I was hoping it was going to be Okoye, who is honestly one of my favorite characters in the MCU. I was hoping that Shuri was going to realize that she's not really suited for all of this, and she was going to pass it on to somebody who was better suited to be the Black Panther. Instead, she does take it on for herself. And I was hoping against hope that it was going to be M'Baku, that it was going to be like a big, giant, fucking hulking Black Panther, which would have been dope as fuck. We have an entirely different dynamic in Wakanda now than we did in the first one, where there's open opportunity for more characters to be central players in the story. And they don't even necessarily have to be Black Panthers, but maybe I'm just projecting and hoping that there could be a different Black Panther besides Shuri, who I don't really love as a character. And I don't love Letitia Wright as an actress or a person, honestly. So I was glad that things are somewhat open-ended to where it doesn't have to hinge on her. Like she may pop up here and there, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Seth? I have a little bit of a different take. Yeah. I think that what they, what they ended up setting up was that Shuri as the Panther does not have to be in Wakanda to have a story focus on her now. Sure. She can be anywhere out in the world doing anything she wants. And any story that is focused on Wakanda does not necessarily have to include Shuri. There's been rumors that they would do like a Wakanda or a Dora Milaje Disney Plus series. And they can do that now and focus on the day-to-day of Wakanda without the Panther actually being present for everything day-to-day. The Panther shows up for the big stuff. 
I was with you. Shuri was at the bottom of my list of the characters that I was hoping would actually end up as the Panther. They kind of did a version of what I thought they might do going in, which was essentially split the role and have two Panthers and have whoever was king or queen at the end also take the heart-shaped herb and become the Panther have multiple characters use it at the same time, and then have Shuri or one of those characters, perhaps Nakia, do something that, hey, the plot requires that she does something that is so against tradition or Wakandan law, or go blow something up that kills a bunch of innocent people and they have to kind of disavow her, and you have sort of a outside of Wakanda covert Black Panther that can go do stuff that isn't officially sanctioned when they need it, and then you have the actual official ruler of Wakanda Black Panther. And they kind of did that without making Mbaka the Black Panther. Yeah, and that kind of irked me too, because there was one point in the movie where Shuri's trying to work on synthesizing the heart-shaped herb that gives the Black Panther its power. And Nakia, being the sneaky spy she is, she finds her way into Shuri's lab and is just sitting on the steps kind of observing and ends up being there for like emotional support. They have a, a really nice series of moments. Nakia just sort of showing up there out of the blue was me thinking and wishing and hoping that she was going to be the Panther. Because Nakia is this character who was a Wakandan war dog. She is a spy. She's an infiltrator. She's a warrior. She has all the skills and talents. She's got the world weariness and the world awareness. She's been out in the world for a number of years, both including her, her previous career as a war dog and also where she's been as a person since the first Black Panther movie. It would have made perfect fucking sense for her to be the Black Panther going forward. But this was Shuri's story, so it was integral that Shuri becomes a Black Panther. See, I disagree with you a little bit. I think it could have made perfect sense with where they ended with Nakia at the end of the first movie. With where they introduce her at in this movie, it wouldn't it wouldn't have made sense at all for her to be the one. Well, there's extenuating factors in her life that would have stopped her from doing it that we learn later that we won't talk about because it is one of the things in the movie I don't want to spoil. Even without that, she has moved out of Wakanda. She left before T'Challa died. She left- After you snapped. Yeah, after the snap. She moved to Haiti. She started a school. She's teaching people how to apply certain Wakandan methods and methodologies and things like that without vibranium, just with what they had available. And she was the character that really inspired T'Challa to open Wakanda up. So it makes sense that she's going out and and doing that. She's got her own mission that has nothing to do with covert stuff. She only comes back because Queen Ramonda shows up and begs her. uh, And also because Shuri is in extreme danger and she feels like she owes the family. That part, it makes sense, but I never got the sense, even once Nakia came back, it was it was always very clear that like, even without getting into the other thing that we're not talking about, once she, she was out, she was out. She would come back to help because it was absolutely dire and they needed her, but she wasn't going to be staying. That's fair. Yeah. I just don't like Shuri all that much. <laughs> and it, I mean, like I said, I don't want to necessarily talk about people's personal politics and, and worldviews and whatnot, but what we know about Leticia Wright, whether or not it was rumors or not, we know she's very much sort of an anti-vaxxer and that's something I'm not a big fan of. And it kind of sucks that she as an actress has now been rewarded with being a superhero and the centerpiece of this franchise now. It's just, for me personally, it kind of sucks. But like I said before, I'm, I'm glad that Ryan Coogler came back into this movie. Even if it doesn't feel like he's fully invested in the plot and whatnot, there's key points where he does feel invested. Even if Black Panther 3 is not the place where Doom first appears, I really want Coogler and his team to be the ones to get a chance to really build out Latveria and what that looks like. 
the first to get a chance to really develop him. They've already kind of said that Doom is probably not going to be the main villain of the first Fantastic Four movie, that they're going to go in a different direction. They already kind of pulled the trigger on the obvious plot, but one of the obvious plot points to introduce Doom going into it would have been Latveria being involved in or instigating a conflict between Atlantis or Talokan and Wakanda. Yeah. Um, that's a position that Doom has found himself in as many times as him being a supervillain who is also a world leader, where you have a clear superhero who is also a world leader, and then kind of a middle ground character in Namor who kind of tips the balance either way, depending on who makes their case to him. Yeah, at this point, I don't really want anybody besides Ryan Cooler to have his hands on Victor Von Doom because that's such a interesting and nuanced and historically apparently difficult character to nail for some fucking reason. Like you said, like Ryan Coogler's niche in the MCU has been working with very secluded and very secretive and very secloistered nations that have reasons to, you know, hide away what they hide away and not present themselves to the world as they really are. The fact that he pulled off Namor and all that comes with Namor in this movie, and he did it relatively well with all the other things that had to have been thrown in there and balanced to make this movie what it is, I don't want them to fuck up Victor Von Doom. <laughs> I really don't. And I feel like Ryan Coogler's kind of proven himself twice over now that he's the guy who should try and tackle that type of character because he's basically done it twice now. And Namor is one of the strongest points in this movie. It's an okay movie. It's not great. It's good. I didn't get up and go to the bathroom halfway through without caring like I did Thor Love and Thunder, which I thought fucking sucked. I've ranged from largely indifferent to outright hating everything in Phase 4, and this is the first movie that I didn't just completely fucking despise. I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. Like I've illustrated in this, this episode, I have issues with it. Maybe those issues will be alleviated some upon a second viewing. We'll see. But for right now, I would honestly give it probably like a 6.5 if I had to give it like, a, like an out of 10 rating, just because it sets up more interesting ideas. It sets up at least one really great character that I can't wait to see more of. We'll see what happens with the Ironheart series. The jury is kind of out on that one. But as a whole coherent, cohesive, singular piece of filmmaking, it's got a lot of issues, a lot of problems. And those aren't necessarily all the fault of the writer and the director and just the crew in general, because they had to deal with the pandemic. They had to deal with the death of their central character slash actor. They had to set up a lot of stuff that they probably shouldn't have had to have set up because Marvel always insists on everything being interconnected and whatnot to some degree. So I recommend it. It's a good movie. It's not great. It's probably not going to end up being the cultural phenomenon that the first movie was, but I think it's the best movie by far of the fourth phase of Marvel movies, which is a low bar, but I mean, <laughs> Ryan Coogler and crew, they do what they can with this movie. And like I said, it's entertaining. I had a good time with it. I probably had an even better time debating it over dinner right afterwards and then talking about it with you here on this podcast episode, but it's fine. What do you think, Seth? Do you recommend Black Panther Wakanda Forever? Definitely recommended. I have it not as much higher than you as I would have thought, probably more like a 7.5 for me. Yeah. An 8 for me, if I'm going to give that to an MCU film, is getting into the territory of the MCU movies that I would recommend unabashedly to somebody to try to sell them on watching more MCU. Sure. And I don't think this quite gets to that level, but it, it does what it does pretty well. For me, it hits all the beats that it's going for. It doesn't knock too many of them out of the park except for the memorial for Chadwick Boseman. 
it's self-contained for a lot of the rest of the MCU, but it does have a little bit more of a, this is obviously a story that is setting up more stories for these characters feel. The ways in which it's connected to the rest of the MCU is frustrating and annoying for me. But it, like I said before, it's very refreshing that this is something of a self-contained story with its own sort of reasoning for existing. Because we don't get a whole lot of that in the MCU at all anymore. Everything is interconnected. Everything feels like a part two or three in an ongoing series as opposed to just a part two or even just a part one in and of itself. We don't get those self-contained films anymore. And I worry that this is going to be like the last time we ever get something that feels like that with the MCU because it's just getting more and more ridiculous, more outlandish, bigger and bolder and grander. I don't even know what the fuck's going to happen once like the X-Men and the Fantastic Four are involved and how they're going to go about making things bigger and better and grander and crazier. I feel like Thanos was like the culmination of everything that the MCU needed to be and it probably should have just fucking ended there, but I know it's never going to end. I hope we continue to get more movies like this one that aren't just puzzle pieces. And even though it's in both good and bad ways, it's heavily reliant on the first movie and the fact that Chadwick Boseman passed away. You can take that however you want. It does largely feel like its own thing in the sense that it's not largely dependent upon or being an anchor for other pieces of the MCU dependent upon that. And that's what I want more of, goddammit. I'm fucking exhausted with the MCU. I just want one or two movies per fucking phase that I can just latch onto and enjoy because everything in this phase has just been noise and it doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And this movie felt like the calm of the storm, like the eye of the hurricane (laughs) in a lot of weird ways. I don't know if that makes sense. I feel like we're, we're getting to a point where they're solidly setting up essentially parallel narratives for the MCU. And we're going to have the big grand multiverse stuff going cosmic and higher power levels. And they've got enough characters now built out with the depth that they built up Disney Plus and the bench to have the lower tier political, more street level stuff. And then even kind of a third one, if you get into the mystic side, depending on whether Blade works out or not, uh, considering they lost their director not that long before they were going to start filming, despite the fact that Mahershala Ali is literally perfect casting. Yeah. Watched Alita Battle Angel, and he's it's like watching Blade era Wesley Snipes just <laughs> there. It's yeah. one of the most perfect imitations I've ever seen on screen. And so he can absolutely pull it off. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have a ton of confidence in them to get the movie right at this point, considering the, the turmoil there. Nope. Where we're going to end up is things are going to be split into multiple branches in the MCU that eventually will start to come together for some big thing. But for the most part, there's going to be, hey, if the multiverse stuff isn't for you, then go watch the Daredevil series. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying those those will be things that probably won't be dealing as directly with the multiverse stuff. Yeah. And if the multiverse stuff is the only thing you care about, then you don't have to pay attention to these other franchises. You know, you can take them or leave them. And it'll be a little bit more, you don't have to watch everything. You can kind of pick a path. I hope that's the case because it doesn't feel like that at all right now. All the TV shows are just setting up movies. Movies are just setting up more movies. Now movies with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever are setting up TV shows too because this movie was a setup for Ironheart which I I can't help but imagine is not going to tie in with Iron Wars with Don Cheadle and War Machine at some point. I mean, mean, you you made that point as well. Like You may as well just throw Riri Williams into Iron Wars. I mean, why not? She and War Machine are essentially the only Tony Stark-esque Iron Man characters left. So I don't know. Uh, This movie is good. It was fine. 
it didn't instill any confidence in me for the MCU going forward because it felt so largely removed from the rest of the MCU, despite the fact that it was insistent upon having things set up in it. I don't know, this movie is weird for me. It's, it's a fucking weird one. And the movie largely just feels like that all the way through. But again, I do recommend it. Check it out. There is no singer at the very end of the credits, so don't worry about that. But there are a couple of scenes during the credits. So once you get to the credits proper, you can just fucking leave. You don't have to wait another 10 minutes, <laughs> which is good. Stay through the credits. Don't stay to the very end, because once you know what just happened, you'll know it when it happens. You, you can leave. You can you can go to your nearest restaurant and debate your friends about it like we did. <laughs> and I think that's going to do it for this very lengthy episode of Space Castle. As always, it's your clubhouse for all things nerdy. My friend is D... My, what the fuck? My friend is DT. And my friend is Seth. My name is D... <laughs> my name is DT. And on behalf of my very good friend, Super Later Seth, I want to thank you guys for listening. You're participating and you are supporting the show just by doing so. If you want to take it a step further, you can do so by joining the Galactonaut crew at patreon.com slash spacecastlepod. You can tell me and Seth we're both thick-skinned motherfuckers that we're completely wrong, or you can praise us for our insightful thoughts on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. No, I think that's all of them. At SpaceCastlePod. <laughs> it's so hard to keep track these days. I know, right? Or if you want to do it in private, you can send us an email at spacecastlepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, my name is DT on behalf of Seth. Uh, Bye. Thanks for listening. Be good.